you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Gospel of Luke and chapter 22. Once you get there, if you would jump down to verse 47, 47, and we're going to read to verse 62 in our time together this morning as we are nearing the conclusion to the Gospel of Luke. We find ourselves in Holy Week, and we left last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, and there we drop in today. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with me on the screen behind me. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's go ahead and read this together. Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, starting verse 47. God's word says, While he was still speaking, he being Jesus, there came a crowd, and, a, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light, And looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. Whether one is familiar with the Bible or not, whether one is a Christian or not, the name Judas Iscariot is one that is well-known, yes? For 2,000 years, Judas has been rightly seen as the quintessential traitor. The name itself has been used to speak of someone who has become a sudden betrayer. It, It is highly unlikely that you will meet someone who has named their new baby Judas. G.K. Chesterton said, If there is one proper noun which has become a common noun, it is certainly the name of Judas. The name is known everywhere merely as the name of a traitor. 
Move across centuries, medieval art frequently featured Judas with red hair as if on fire because his deeds were considered hellish. It seems an indisputable fact of history that the act of Judas betraying the Lord was among the worst things ever done by a person in human history. I think our ancestors would be surprised to learn that attempts have been made over the course of the last 60 or so years to rehabilitate Judas's image. They, they would be surprised, our ancestors, to see that Judas is almost always a hero in most modern depictions, or at least he's a conflicted protagonist whose betrayal was all Jesus's idea. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice penned what would become a musical, a movie, and an album called Jesus Christ Superstar, in which the audience is invited to see the story of Jesus from the perspective of Judas. In this objectively bad rock opera, Judas is seen as the protagonist, not Jesus. He is also someone who frequently offers Jesus advice when Jesus, you know, seems to be missing things. In the play, Judas's intentions on in his betrayal of Jesus were not wicked, but an attempt to save Jesus from himself. The religious leaders offer him money for his trouble, which he takes against his will. You know, he didn't really want it. Now you fast forward a few decades, and you have sudden hoopla, I don't know if any of you remember this from the early 2000s, over the discovery of an ancient fragment in which is written the so-called Gospel of Judas. There, there Judas is portrayed as Jesus' favorite disciple who was given the nasty job uh, by Jesus of betraying him because he understood Jesus' special mission better than anybody else. So Judas is no villain. He's just doing what he was told by Jesus and will be rewarded with a rulership at the end of the age. Now then you have, in 2005, a play called The Last Days of Judas Iscariot, which centers on Judas's trial in purgatory and a liberal young female lawyer's attempt to have him cleared of all charges so that he could be led into heaven. Even the disciple Thomas argues in Judas' favor, saying that he should be forgiven and admitted to glory. The central idea seems to be to ask, is Judas a traitor or a misunderstood scapegoat? Then in 2016, the BBC aired a documentary devoted entirely to Judas to give him a fair shake, asking a similar question, are we thinking wrongly about Judas? The Bishop of Leeds, Nick Baines, even said around the time of the airing of the documentary that I feel a bit sorry for Judas. He has gone down in history as the ultimate traitor who sells his friend for a few quid. Whether he is a traitor or a scapegoat, he has had lousy press. In response to this, T.A. Pasco wrote from a place of bewilderment that we've, we're even considering whether or not Judas is a traitor, saying a perfectly good word exists in the English language for Judas's action, evil. So why all of this? Why is, is it that we suddenly have a fascination with the person of Judas? And why, after all these millennia, are we trying to absolve him from the wickedness of his actions? I said a moment ago that our ancestors would be surprised to learn that we have made strides to attempt to rehabilitate him. But they wouldn't only be surprised, they would be horrified. So why this attempt to make him into a sympathetic character or even a misunderstood hero. What is about the about history's most notorious traitor that draws moderns to him and makes us want to vindicate him? You know, there are likely many reasons. Perhaps the most obvious is that 
we see too much of ourselves in Judas. If he is me, then yeah, I want him to be as sympathetic and misunderstood, right? Not a wicked man who committed an unjustifiably wicked act. Darrell Bach says that Judas is a reflection of anyone who ends up rejecting Jesus. So for those who reject Jesus, to hear that one who rejects him is not a hero who should be hailed, but someone who denied the Lord and stands condemned would be something we don't want to face, especially if what we said last week is true about our discomfort with the idea that we are fallen sinners deserving of God's righteous wrath. If Judas can be a hero or even a misunderstood and well-meaning fellow who gets a bad rap, well then, so can I be. If Judas is truly a villain, however, and I see myself in him as I reject Jesus, then what does that make me? Maybe that's why. Another reason may be because we want to be able to understand how everything works, right? We want all the answers. So since we can't wrap our minds around the idea that people can freely make wicked choices, that God in his sovereignty can use for his good purposes, we want to find an alternate way. Can God use the wicked actions of free people to bring about his divine purposes, which are invariably good? Can situations that seem to be out of control to us really be in his control the whole time, even if we don't know how they could possibly end up for his sovereign purposes? Can we work through means that we would not dream of? Can he work through means that we could not dream of because we are thinking in merely worldly ways? Is that possible, or must we have it all figured out? The text we're considering this morning addresses all of these questions and more as we, as I said, get ever closer to the cross. So let's work through this text and see what the Lord has for us. The scene again begins where we left off last week in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the Lord is presented with a cup of God's divine wrath that he is to absorb in his person for the sins of the world. As the Lord agonized over the horror of the cup, the disciples sleep. Well, that is the 11 disciples, of course, who have remained with him. We saw over and over again, Jesus has gotten up from his prostrate position of praying to his Father and of the agony of the sweat and the blood in order that he might exhort the disciples, pray, depend on God, that he might, they might not become faithless, that they might persevere in the difficult hours that are to come. Well, here we are. That difficult hour is no longer pending. It has arrived. And after Jesus had accepted his fate and of the will of the Father to be crushed, in the middle of him, telling his disciples one more time, stay alert, pray, he is interrupted in verse 47 by an approaching mob. And they are a mob indeed, aren't they? For they come with clubs and swords in hands that they might seize Jesus. And who should be leading them? You know, we know the chief priests and the elders and temple officials and the usual suspects of those who hate Jesus are there. But they're not leading the charge, are they? They're not out front directing the mob. Instead, it's Judas who leads them. It is Judas 
who pointed them to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was, verse 39, Jesus' customary place to pray in the evening hours. It was Judas who showed them exactly where to go. It was Judas who walked up to the Lord of glory and attempted to kiss him on the cheek in order that in the dark, cold hours in this garden, Jesus might be singled out to the men with their clubs and with their swords so they know who exactly to arrest. And although our dear friend Luke is the pithiest of all the synoptic writers, he is very clear that what Judas had done and was doing is both of his own volition and extremely wicked. Judas, read it, Judas, who was one of the twelve. Judas, who was leading the mob. Judas, who drew near to kiss him. It wasn't just some guy who knew who Jesus was, who told the Sanhedrin, yeah, I know what he looks like, and I'll show you. He was one of the twelve. You know that, right? Like, we all knew that. Luke doesn't think we're fools. But what he does want to magnify is the horror of this act so that you can't miss it. Here is no acquaintance. Here is no co-worker. Here is no mere associate. Here is not even a simple friend. He is a hand-picked disciple. One of the original 12 who was as close as close could be to Jesus in the previous several years of ministry. One of the 12 closest people to Jesus on earth. That's who went to the Jewish leadership and volunteered to betray Jesus to them. That's who led the mob to where he knew Jesus would be in the cover of darkness. That's who betrayed Jesus with the kiss on the cheek of a dear friend. It's a special kind of pain to be betrayed by someone close to you, is it not? There's nothing really like it, is there? Like, if one Sunday, after service, a guest walked up to me in the foyer and said that they never want to see me again. That bothered me, but not that much, right? But I'd be more confused than anything. I'd worry about it for a little while, but not for long. Now, if one of you came up to me after service and you said you never want to see me again, that would bother me a lot longer and for a lot more. It would hurt in a way that a guest I'm meeting for the first time, right? Wouldn't. But you know, eventually, I'd recover. If my wife or my child came up to me and said it, I never want to see you again, I never want to talk to you again, I'd be undone. Right? It would hurt in a different way. I couldn't get over that. I would never recover from that. Nearness, affection, vulnerability, time spent together. These all heighten the way in which people can hurt you. There's something especially painful about being betrayed by someone close to you. Have you ever felt betrayed before? Have you? So has the Lord. He is truly a high priest who has endured in every way the pains that we have. There's nothing we could take to him that we, he cannot sympathize with us about. He can sympathize with even being betrayed. In Psalm 55, the psalmist laments the pains inflicted on him by someone who has committed wicked deeds against him. 
He needs deliverance. And then he says this, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. See, when Judas, one of the twelve, one whose feet Jesus had washed and shared the Last Supper with, betrayed Jesus, it was a betrayal of a kind rarely seen. Because not only was he Jesus' close companion who lived and did ministry with him for years, but because of who it was that Judas was betraying. What does Jesus ask? Look at your text. What does Jesus ask Judas as he approaches? He calls him by name. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Every word of that question is emphatic. Judas, my friend, I know who you are. Would you betray me? But he doesn't even say me, does he? Would you betray the Son of Man? He's betraying a divine office, not merely a person. Here's not just some guy. Right? Some rabbi, some teacher, some leader of a religious movement. He is betraying the God-man prophesied about in Holy Scripture. And by what means? A kiss. A gesture of love, love to cloak his treachery. James Edwards notes of Judas' kiss, it was an act of love performed for a mission of hate. The manner of betrayal becomes the first example of the mockery of Jesus, which will play a key role in the crucifixion narrative. Leave it to modern Westerners to read all of this and say, you know, maybe Judas is misunderstood. Maybe he isn't guilty. Maybe he isn't a victim of divine, maybe he's just a victim of divine circumstance. No, no, Judas is wicked. His actions are depraved, and he is doing this of his own free will. Judas chose this. Every step of his betrayal was of his own volition. There's no compulsion here. Even marking Jesus by means of a kiss was Judas's idea. According to Matthew 26, Judas told the mob, the one I kiss, he's the one. Arrest him. Shall we raise the stakes and make this offense even worse? Look how the Lord greets his betrayer. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? It's just a question. But it's one delivered by Jesus as a gentle Savior who has been wounded by one close to him. See, friends, we must not picture Jesus as a sort of unfeeling and stoic kind of robot as we often portray him. He's not an emotionless robot. He he was unaffected by what's happening. While he is completely in control of these events, he is still divine. He is still fully man and can be wounded by someone who was close to him. You know, in Matthew's account, Jesus calls Judas friend. Is this how you would greet someone who you knew had turned traitor on you? Charles Spurgeon said it like this, observe his gentleness, talking of Jesus. The first words he spoke to Judas when the traitor had polluted his cheek with a kiss was this, friend, friend, note that, not you hateful miscreant, but friend, wherefore art thou come? 
Not, wretch, wherefore do you dare to stain my cheek with your foul and lying lips? No, friend, wherefore art thou come? If there had been anything good left in Judas, this would have brought it out. If he had not been an unmitigated, incorrigible, thrice-died traitor, his greed must have lost its power at that instance, and he would have cried, my master, I came to betray you, but that generous word has won my soul. Here, if you must be bound, I will bound, be bound with you. I make a full confession of my infamy, but he did not. No sorrow here for Judas as he approached the Lord to mark him with a kiss, that he might be arrested and beaten and crucified. We must not, as we mentioned earlier in the chapter, we must not write Judas's action off as him being a victim of satanic influence. Was he influenced by the devil? Yes. But how could he be used by Satan? Only by his beginning the process through his sin. Only by his turning from the Lord and toward his unrepentant sin. He prepared his own heart to make room for the devil. Judas decided that he loved something more than he loved Jesus. And so he pursued it and he pursued it and the devil pounced. Satan can use Judas, listen, because Judas is allowing it. Judas has given himself over to sin and thus made himself ripe for the satanic picking. His betrayal began well before Satan entered him. You know, last week we talked about how we minimize sin, don't, didn't we? We call it by a different name, right? Something that's more palatable for us. We make excuses for it. All of us do this. We brush it off. We even might celebrate it. And this is a mistake, as we said, because sin is what caused Jesus' horror and agony in the garden, for it is sin that stores up the wrath of God. So is sin serious? Well, our sins just desert staggered the Son of God in Gethsemane. How about another reason to take sin seriously? To name it for what it is. To stop coddling it in our lives and to pursue killing it in our hearts. How about the fact that ongoing unrepentant sin opens up more and more to be pounced on by the devil? You know, so-called small sin that you have excused in your heart over and over again may very well be what the devil uses to more and more take your eyes off of Jesus to make you slowly drift. Do you remember the picture of the slaughterhouse? You know, scientists found that if a cow's distressed when they die, that they release these hormones that will downgrade the quality of the meat they give. You guys knew that, right? That's just general knowledge. <laughs> so slaughterhouses changed how they did things in order to make the cows contented and comfortable. Now, they, 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 what they do is they make their surroundings very familiar. They, they don't yell at them. They don't do anything to surprise them. They don't do anything to nerve them or hurt them ahead of time. And so they're pro they aren't prodded off the truck, okay? They're led in silence onto this ramp. They go through a squeeze chute that's gentle pressure device that mimics a mother's nuzzling touch. That The cattle continue down the ramp onto smoothly curving paths. No sudden turns, right? The cows experience the sensation of going home. The same kind of way that they traveled so many times before. They don't even notice when their hooves are no longer on the ground. As the conveyor belt lifts slowly upward and then in the twinkling of an eye, they're killed. A transition from livestock to meat 
in an instant, and they're never even uh, aware enough to be alarmed by it. You know, forsaking Jesus doesn't typically happen by great and sudden falls. It starts slowly. It starts with simple things like ceasing daily Bible reading and prayer. It starts with skipping church here and there until it becomes a habit. It starts with giving in to temptation until you're no longer trying to resist it at all. It starts with excusing your sin until you're fully embraced by it. It starts with calming self-reassurance that you don't need to repent. Then you're ripe for satanic picking. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Judas called Christ Lord, Lord, and yet betrayed him and has gone to his place. Ah, how many Judases we have in these days that kiss Christ and yet betray Christ, that in their words profess him, but in their works deny him, that bow their knee to him, and yet in their hearts despise him, that call him Jesus, and yet will not obey him for their Lord. Must not imagine that our sins are innocuous, nor that we are impervious to being like the Lord's betrayer. No, no room for arrogant swagger in text as solemn as this one. Remember what we said about the reason for Judas's betrayal when we were at the early stage in verse to, chapter 22. We're not outright told. Why did he do it? We don't know. And that may be on purpose, for then we cannot look at Judas and say, I would never do what he did. David Garland says attempts to find the reason or reasons to explain why Judas did what he did are diversions that prevent us from looking at our own potential betrayal. If we convince ourselves that Judas acted for this or that reason, we can also convince ourselves that we would not succumb to such disloyalty. If no specific reason is given except greed or Satan, then we are all susceptible. We too can betray Jesus for all the temptations in life that may snare us. Must not bank on our own ability or our own record or our own strength. We, we must rely on Christ alone to keep us. The disciples slept in the garden when they should have been praying not to enter into temptation, but Judas stopped praying for dependent strength on God a long time ago. Judas had every, he had every religious advantage you could possibly have. Isn't that true? And he didn't, that didn't keep him in the love of Christ. You, my friend, you might have an impressive religious record. You might have come from a religious household. You might have privileges stacked to the ceiling, and yet none of that will keep you in the love of Christ. None of that should be where you locate your security in the faith. We must all cast ourselves on Jesus alone to keep us and never cease casting ourselves on him. All that can save us and all that can keep us is found in Christ alone. Are you depending on him, my friend? Ask in your heart. Are you depending on him? Here's a hard one, okay? Is he more precious to you than the things of earth that dazzle your eyes. We, we must not ever move on from the basic truths of the gospel and our need of it. We never graduate from the gospel. You understand this? Yes? 
Are you as zealous and infatuated with Jesus as you were when you first converted? Never move on from amazement that Jesus would save a wretch like me. Because that truth won't just save you, it will sustain you and keep you from drifting. We must move on. Now, how do the other disciples react to these unfolding events? So this scene plays out in a way that makes it seem like it's utter chaos. <laughs> but Jesus shows himself to be the only one in control. The disciples ask Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? You know, the way this sentence is constructed indicates that Jesus is not being asked permission, okay, as much as he's being informed that they are going to act to physically defend him. The disciples showed that they missed Jesus' point in verses 36 through 38, where Jesus used the sword as a metaphor for preparedness, not as an advocacy for violence. They missed the point, so one of them takes out a sword, strikes the servant of the high priest, and cuts off his ear. Now, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say, you look at your text, one of his disciples did this. They don't identify who it is, okay? But then you get to John's gospel. And he says, yeah, so that was Peter who cut that guy's ear off. Like, he don't mind telling you at all. But Jesus does, doesn't want the disciples to come to his defense through physical force, and he tells them, that's enough. And then he walks over to the servant, he heals his ear, and mark it, this is his last miracle before his death. For the second time, in this short scene, we see the mercy and love of Jesus on full display. In his darkest hour, when he is being arrested like a bandit and betrayed by his friend, and he'll soon be abandoned by the rest of the disciples, he takes a moment to heal even someone who would come to arrest, beat, and kill him. He takes a moment to heal someone who wants him dead. Jesus exemplifies and he models for his disciples and for us the command he gave back in chapter 6 to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. What disciples miss once again is that Jesus must suffer. That he intends to do the will of the Father, which entails being arrested and beaten and crucified. He has set his face like a flint to fulfill scripture. There is no need for swords, for Jesus is giving himself over to die. You remember what we've said before. Jesus is not a hapless victim who is helpless in face of these circumstances. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down. He is in full control of this situation. And if he wanted to resist, he not only could call down legions of angels from heaven, to come to his defense, he's creator God. He could just incinerate the mob without even saying anything. But Jesus is determined to be the Lion of Judah who becomes the Lamb led to the slaughter. It is the will of the Father that it be so. So it is his will too. We're reminded once again that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. The disciples fail to realize that the kingdom of God is not brought in by worldly means. Everything, do you realize this? Everything about the kingdom of Christ is different than the world. Everything the world prizes, the kingdom loathes. Every approach to living that the world sells is contrary to the kingdom of Christ. 
Greatness is being low. Yes? Power is being weak. Service is greater than prestige. Money is not an advantage, but a danger. Who says this kind of stuff? The marginalized and outcast entered the kingdom more easily than the put-together wealthy and celebrated. The world, yes, is slanted towards the powerful. The kingdom is slanted towards the weak and the vulnerable. But blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Who would say those things? Who? Blessed are the poor? In the ethic of the world, all of that sounds strange, foreign, even foolish. Who would define flourishing as poverty and weeping and meekness and persecution? Jonathan Pennington has said in his book on Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus proclaims as being a state of flourishing includes many things that humanity naturally and even vehemently seeks to avoid. See, you even know what text I'm talking about when I talk about blessed are the meek and blessed are the poor. And you know it, you've heard it a thousand times, you know that's the ethic of Christ, but the world in your heart is rejecting it, isn't it? Just like mine is. Because it sounds so strange the kingdom is otherworldly. He does not win through violence and political maneuverings. He doesn't win through strength and gritty determination. He doesn't win through the schemes and mechanisms of the world. If Jesus wanted to have the kingdom look like the world, he could have circumvented all this cross business and marched himself to Rome and killed Caesar, set himself up an army to rule the world by the sword. There would have been no sweat for him. Is that what he did? Instead, he wins by losing. He wins by emptying himself. He wins by allowing himself to be arrested. He wins by being beaten and flogged. He wins by being hoisted on a Roman cross between terrorists. He claims sinners through his dying in their place. Who could dream of this? He wins by heart change, not legislation by the state. He wins in a way no one would thought possible, in a way that it would be deemed by Jews a stumbling block and foolishness by Gentiles. Disciples fail to realize that the kingdom of God is not brought on through the methods and the means of the world. The world says that influence is brought through power, politics, and money. Where's the lie in what I just said? The world says if you are to win, you have to wait, make yourself, make your way up to the top. Jesus says clearly, this is not the way of the kingdom. The kingdom of God cannot be brought on nor spread throughout the earth by using the world's ways. If the world is to be won, it will not happen through adopting the world's ethics and practices. For too long, the church in the West has adopted the methods and practices of the world to try to win the world. What has that gotten us? Well, why are there 75% of churches plateaued or declining and dozens of churches will shut their door today? Has this worked? 
If the church is to make a difference in the world, it must be distinct. It has to be otherworldly. It must be and do things that can only be explained by the fact that they live for a different country. The world is not going to sit up and take notice of people whose ethics and ways are indistinguishable from them. The machinations of the world make sense. That's why American churches have adopted them. But what has that gotten us? Hmm? The world will be won through the unexpected, ordinary means of grace. Through loving enemies. Through the simple, faithful, striving, unimpressive Christ followers. There's a great scene in one of the Hobbit movies. It's not in the book. Where Gandalf, the wizard, is asked why he chose Bilbo for this really important mission. Okay? And Bilbo is unimpressive nobody. All right? And he's a hobbit. Okay? Why him? This is what Gandalf says. He says, Saruman believes it is only great power that could hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps because I am afraid, and he gives me courage. The kingdom wins in ways no one would expect because it's not of this world. Don't you see? Disciples don't fully realize this, but they will in time. It will take this hour of darkness for them to see that. It will take the example of the king of glory, allowing himself to be led to the slaughter to redeem the world for them to understand that his kingdom is of a different kind. What happens next? After Jesus heals the servant, rebukes the disciples, he has a question for them, doesn't he? Look at your text. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Then he makes this, here's a crucial point, right? Showing that they're cowards. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is wondering, what, what, are, what are the swords and clubs for? Like, they think he's some violent revolutionary. Like They need weapons of battle to arrest someone who has been simply traveling the countryside and teaching and healing. This is, you know, if it wasn't for the darkness of the scene, it's almost a humorous picture, isn't it? On the one hand, it's silly that they bring swords to arrest Jesus, who has shown zero evidence that he's a violent insurrectionist. On the other hand, he's God in the flesh. Okay, What are the swords going to do to him? That's not the only thing that makes the leaders and mob look foolish. Jesus is wondering, why you didn't act when I was in the temple every day? Every day! Why are they waiting to arrest him under the cover of of darkness. The answer is simple, isn't it? And I want you to mark this. The time of day reflects the nature of their deeds. The time of day reflects the nature of their deeds. They come out under darkness because they, what they are doing is darkness. Again, Jesus is in full control of the situation. I need you to take that away from the scene. But he's allowing this evil hour, these evil deeds of men to unfold because he will use even these wicked deeds for his ultimate purpose. This is a paradox that we see in this scene, isn't it? The most wicked thing that men could do is betray and kill the perfect son of God. Yes? And yet, it is precisely this 
that God will use in order to save the world. John Piper said, in a way only he can, the night Jesus was arrested, satanic power was in full force for persecution, and Jesus spoke into that situation one of his most sovereign words. He said to those who come to arrest him in the dark, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour is your hour, the power of darkness. In other words, the jaws of the lion close on me tonight no sooner and no later than my father planned. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Boast not over the hand that made you, Satan. You have one hour. This is your hour. What you do, do it quickly. God decides when the hour begins and when it ends. Until the God-appointed hour comes, no one laid a hand on me because this hour had not yet come. God's providence governs Satan's hand in persecution. Evil is allowed this hour. It is allowed to have its way and do its work for this short window. But even though it has its moment, it is not ultimately in control. Again, make no mistake. The actions of these religious leaders, of this mob, of Judas, are all wicked acts that they do of their free choice. But make no mistake, the purposes of God cannot be thwarted. He is so sovereign that he could use the choices of even those with evil intents and use them for his ultimate good. Again, if, if you imagine this night being, imagine you being there at this night, with all this taking place, you know, it seems, like I said, like utter chaos, doesn't it? Jesus, Judas walking with this mob, kissing Jesus, and the disciples ask, should we defend you with the sword? That someone swings wildly. Either Peter's just a bad swordsman or the guy ducks, right? He just clips his ears, and Jesus heals him. Disciples run. Mark's gospel says that one of them fled naked. This is chaos. But it's not. Jesus is in control. And the wicked schemes of men, even the hour of darkness, seem to have its way. All of it is in the hands of this Jesus. And I think that's an important thing to remember for us when we're suffering. In your life too, my friend, does your life ever feel like chaos? You ever suffer because of something somebody else did? You ever, you ever suffer because of something you regret? You ever, you ever been in a position... Where of sorrow, where you wonder, I can't imagine any good thing come from this. What, what could possibly be a positive result of this suffering? It's in those moments we need to look again at this scene. Because even if things seem out of control to us, they're never out of control of the sovereign one. And he's the self-same Christ who was nailed to the tree. Isn't that good news? Have you ever seen the back of a tapestry before? It's just chaos, right? It's just a bunch of lines of yarn. Some of them seem to be going someplace. Some of them seem to be going nowhere. Some of them are cut real close to the cloth. Some are just sticking out. What is the picture? You can't tell. That's because you can't see the front side of the tapestry. But God can. Not only can you see it, he made it and he traced its every line. Can he be trusted? See, Jesus trusts fully in the will of God 
even though he knows what lay ahead of him is more pain than any person has felt before or since, but he went. Why? Because he trusted the Father. And so must we. But again, it isn't about how much faith we have. It isn't about how much strength we can muster during our trials. It's about the object in which we place our faith. Think of it this way. It's illustrated a different way. Imagine you're falling off a cliff. And sticking out of the cliff is a branch that is strong enough to hold you, but you don't know how strong it is. As you fall, you have just enough time to grab the branch. How much faith do you have to have in the branch for it to save you? Now, you must you have be totally sure that it can save you? No, of course not. You only have to have enough faith to grab it. That's because it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. It doesn't matter how you feel about the branch. All that matters is the branch. Whoever told you, my friend, that you need big faith lied to you. Do you have a mustard seed size faith? That's all that's required. Place it in a strong object, and Jesus is that object who could hold your weight. Now, quickly, there's one more scene we have to consider. The mob seizes Jesus, and they lead him away to the first of many kangaroo courts at the high priest's house. Peter trails some distance behind. Why, we aren't told, okay? Maybe it was courage. Maybe it was timid attempt to be at Jesus' side as the rest of the disciples dispersed. We just don't know, okay? We, we do know that some people gathered in the courtyard of this house, and they start a fire to warm themselves on this chilly Jerusalem night, and Peter gets himself near the fire, right? As Peter gets near the fire, the pressure begins. His first menacing intimidator comes in the form of a little girl. She stares at him for a moment and says, Mister, you were with Jesus. What does Peter say? Woman, I don't know him. He doesn't feign confusion. He doesn't stumble over his words. He doesn't come up with anything but flat-out denial of even knowing Jesus at all. Now, a short time passes. Someone else says, hold on, you're one of the disciples. And the stakes are raised. Not only is this stranger claiming that Peter knows Jesus, he's saying, Peter, you're one of his followers. To this, Peter says, man, I am not. Which is him denying not only association with Jesus, but with other disciples as well. The public pressure heats up some more, and Peter is starting to wilt. Finally, about an hour later, someone else says, you're definitely with Jesus. You're a Galilean, and your accent betrays you. This man did some math, didn't he? He's wondering what the odds are that Jesus of Nazareth is on trial 20 or 30 feet away, and there happens to be this Galilean man in Jerusalem, in the middle of the night, warming himself by the fire in the courtyard of the same house that Jesus is being held in. This time, Peter, it, it, this evokes Peter's third denial. Man, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Peter's saying, I, I, I can't understand why you're insisting or coming to these kinds of conclusions. Matthew and Mark heighten the offense by stating that Peter evoked a curse. Swore to God that he didn't know Jesus. Peter denies Jesus the third time. Just as the Lord said he would. And the rooster crowed just as the Lord said it would. But here's something Luke alone does. He raises the stakes even higher. No other gospel does this. Look at verse 61. 
after Peter denied the Lord the third time, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. He turned and looked at Peter. He caught his eye. Peter, the rock, right? Strong man who declared, you are the Christ. He said, I would go to you to prison or to death. Who said that? The other, you know, others, they might, they might deny you and they might cut and run, but not me. The one who took out his sword, slashed his servant, is asked by a little child, aren't you with Jesus? And big, strong Peter answers, I don't know him. Two more times he's asked. He swears on his head, I don't know Jesus at all. And the Lord turns, and he looks him straight in the eye. Peter's undone. Such bravado to only crumble in the face of such little public pressure. You ever wonder, what expression do you think was on the Lord's face when he looked at Peter? Disappointment? Anger? Kind of a I told you so look? You know, we're not told, but I think I could guess from what we know of the Lord, it was a look of love. Gentleness. Maybe even sadness for Peter more than for himself. One look from the Lord can melt even the hardest of hearts. Instantly, Peter feels remorse. He runs. He weeps bitterly. His sin of denial crushes his spirit. And as he ran away from the Lord, was, the Lord was left to face the rest of the day utterly alone. Peter had said, in this text, remembered what the Lord said at the Last Supper, that he would deny him three times and the rooster would crow. Peter said he wouldn't do such a thing because, as we said, you remember, Peter was banking on his love for Jesus, his grip on Jesus, rather than Jesus' love and Jesus' grip on him. But you know what? Even as he wept and remembered that the Lord was right in his prediction of his cowardice, he must have remembered too when the Lord said, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers because he knew enough about Jesus to know that even though he denied the Lord, the Lord would, did not deny him in his repentance. What a scene after the resurrection. You know, Peter finds himself around a fire. Again. This time, he's sitting across from Jesus, who has been crucified and risen. And Jesus looks him in the eye again. And three times he asks him if he loves him, each one canceling out each denial that Peter uttered that dark spring day. He denied his Lord at Jesus' most crucial hour and ran away, and Jesus forgave him. And for the rest of his life, Peter would bank on Jesus' love for him. For the rest of his life, until he himself is arrested for his allegiance to Jesus and crucified upside down, he would bank on Jesus' grip on him more than his grip on Jesus. You, my friend, can I ask, do you ever deny your Lord? I think we all deny the Lord all the time. Do you think that? Every sin is a denial. 
Every moment we could speak of the Lord but keep our mouth shut is a denial. Every time we try to keep our Christianity respectable to unbelievers and marginal Christians is a denial. Every act of disobedience is a denial. Every embrace of comfort over picking up a cross is a denial. Every choice of ourselves over the Lord is a denial. Every time we don't do what we know we ought because we believe it will cost too much is a denial. I see myself in Peter. Do you? There's good news. There's grace and forgiveness available for every failure. And Jesus stands ready to forgive us in our repentance, which leads to transformation, just like Peter. Peter shows us that no sin, no matter how big we feel like we've blown it, is so big that Jesus cannot forgive. Judas and Peter, one betrayed, one denied, one was forgiven, one was not. Why? Because one had sorrow that led to repentance, one did not. Isn't that the key? One loved Jesus with a weak faith. One did not love Jesus at all. One resembles the world. The other, after he was broken, used that painful lesson to learn what the kingdom was really about. Eugene Peterson said this, Among the apostles, the one absolutely stunning success was Judas, and the one thoroughly groveling failure was Peter. Judas was a success in a way that most impressed us. He was successful both financially and politically. He cleverly arranged to control the money of the apostolic band. He skillfully manipulated the political forces of the day to accomplish his goal. And Peter was a failure in ways that we most dread. He was impotent in a crisis and socially inept. At the arrest of Jesus, he collapsed, a hapless, blustering coward in the most critical situation of his life with Jesus, the confession on the road to Caesarea Philippi and the vision of the Mount Transfiguration. He said the most embarrassingly inappropriate things. He was not the companion we would want with us in times of danger, and he was not the kind of person we'd feel comfortable with at social occasion. Time, of course, he says, has reversed our judgment on the two men. Judas is now a byword for betrayal, and Peter is one of the most honored names in church and world. Judas is a villain, Peter a saint. Yet the world continues to chase after the successes of Judas, financial wealth and political power, and to defend itself against the failures of Peter, impotence and ineptness. Do you have a weak faith, my friend? It's enough. It's enough if it's in the right object who has never-ending streams of mercy for the repentant. You know, on this day in 1546, Protestant reformer Martin Luther died. His last words, we are beggars. This is true. We are beggars. This is true. Peter had to learn that he was a beggar. Not a strong man, a beggar. Then he could fully internalize that Christ's mercy and strength is for beggars. Are you a beggar, my friend?